In the spring, the late spring of 1996, I had a chance to go on a mission trip to Haiti. Uh, it was with the Christian Campus Ministry at Indiana State University, Mark and Sue Gallagher. Uh, Mark Gallagher led the trip down to Haiti, and uh, we took off from Chicago uh, at O'Hare, and we flew to Miami. From Miami, we flew to Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And there are some things that really stood out in my, in my, stand out in my memory from that trip. It was an amazing trip. Uh, I, I thank God for the chance I had to go on that trip because I learned a lot about wealth. I learned a lot about poverty. I learned a lot about need. Uh, we boarded the airplane in Indianapolis. And we flew to Chicago. And I remember landing in Chicago and we're sitting there looking for something to eat. And my best friend at the time, Adam, uh, who's now my brother-in-law, Adam and I went out and uh, we found this place to eat. Uh, we had shrimp. Only these were not shrimp. Uh, shrimp is the last word I would use to describe these uh, little chickens of the sea. I mean, uh, it was the tastiest shrimp I've ever had, and they were about this long and about that fat around, and they were amazing. Six bucks a piece. Six bucks a piece, but worth every penny. It was amazing. These things were awesome. Grilled shrimp, oh, fantastic. Well, anyway... Um, uh, it was such. A, this was such a contrast to what we were going to experience over the next ten days. You know, here we are sitting at O'Hare Airport eating six-dollar shrimp, and and what we were in for, we had no idea. We had no idea. We arrived in Haiti in the middle of the afternoon. It's about a two-hour flight from Miami to Port-au-Prince, so it takes as long to get from Chicago to Miami as it does from Miami to Port-au-Prince. It's way down there. We were really close to the equator. It's late May. And the first thing I remember stepping off the plane, you don't get off the plane in Port-au-Prince and uh, there's a nice little, you know, corridor that leads you into the airport. You get off the plane about a quarter mile away from the airport and they wheel up a, a staircase and you walk down the staircase and you walk across the runway all the way to the airport. And I remember thinking how hot it was and the wind is just kind of howling and it reminded me of a scene of, of, of almost like an army movie of, you know, it's just you get off this plane and it's hot and it's miserable and and you go into the to the airport and there's just there's no air conditioning and it's got to be 95 degrees with about 100% humidity except it's not raining it just feels like it it's it, you're surrounded by water it's miserable and you can see right there where that red star is on that map that's where Port-au-Prince is and so um, we're just hot and we're miserable. We have no idea what we're in for. And we, we get off the plane, we go into there, and I, and I, I seem to remember, I, I could be wrong, but I thought there was a goat in the, uh, uh, in the uh, area, in the baggage area. I, I, I'm pretty sure there was a goat. But um, So we're really, really hot, we're really, really miserable, and uh, we get our luggage, we load it onto an old school bus that had no air conditioning. It's about a 45-minute, or a, I'm sorry, a 45-mile trip from Port-au-Prince to Grand Guave, and that's where we were going to spend the next 10 days was Grand Guave, Haiti. So that 45 miles took us three and a half hours because of civil war and the bombing out of the roads. You would literally be, and we were moving too. I mean, we were flying up into the mountains, and there were places where the road was literally bombed out, and you had to wait for cars to pass through on one side so that you could go around the, the crater and, and continue getting on to where you needed to go. And so 45 miles, three and a half hours, 95 degrees, 99% humidity, and one very nauseated future minister in the back of the bus. Okay? Needless to say, by the time we arrived in Grand Guave, we were ready 
to get off that bus. And I remember looking out the windows of the bus at the capital city of Port-au-Prince. This is the capital city of Haiti. There are no sewers. There are mounds of garbage, yay high. I mean, and not from like the stage, yay high, from the floor, yay high. Just mounds of garbage everywhere. There are little kids running around naked using the little trenches for the sewers as, as a restroom. This is unlike anything I have ever seen or experienced before. There were, like I said, huge mounds and piles of garbage along the roadside. There were flies everywhere. And the smell was awful, like nothing I'd ever smelled before. Once we arrived at the compound where we were staying, we unpacked, and we were allowed to go out into the town of Grand Guave and look around. There were very few houses, mostly just one-room shacks with tin roofs and dirt floors. One of the things they had us to do had us do while we were there was we would go out with the pastor and we would visit people in their homes. These people had nothing. I mean, just almost nothing. A, a one, maybe a two-room tin shack with little furniture. The clothes that they wore were given to them by the, the people at the compound, the people at the mission. The food they ate was from what they were able to grow. I got so sick of mango, I still can't even look at it to these days. But we ate mango every day. We saw bananas growing from trees. We ate, you know, fresh bananas off the trees. The food was, they grew was amazing. You know, I liked mango at that point, and I can't look at it anymore. The people of Haiti have one of the lowest per capita incomes in the world. My question for you this morning is, could you live on $1.50 a day? $1.50 a day. Their per capita income is 1200 bucks a year. That's what they live on. They could barely afford to buy food. It's estimated that in 1998, 80% of the population lives under the poverty line. Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Yet, when the people came together to worship on Sunday morning, when they got together to praise God, they praised God. They would put on the finest clothes that they had, that they had been given to wear, and I mean, and we're talking, you know, long sleeve, it's, it's hot, okay? I mean, it's hot, and they're wearing long sleeve shirts and long pants. To all of us, you know, people from America are in shorts and t-shirts because we're just roasting, and they're out there, you know, and they're singing, and they're dancing, and they're raising their hands, they're praising God for what they had. They loved the Lord, they loved Jesus, and they sang their hearts out, and, mm, um, they started early in the morning. We left at noon because we had some things that we had to do at the compound that afternoon. At 5 o'clock, they were still singing and praising God. It's an all-day thing. It, no looking at the clock at 11.45 going, oh, I'm going to miss the beginning of the Bears game. Sean's not even through his opening illustration yet. I am going to miss the beginning of the Bears game. They have no Bears game. You know what they have on Sunday mornings? They have church. You know what they have on Sunday afternoons? They have church. They sing and they praise God and they give him the whole day. And it's awesome. When I got back from Haiti, I had a different idea of what wealth is. When we think about the wealthy, we think about people living in mansions. And we think about athletes and entertainers who make tens of millions of dollars a year. In light of my trip to Haiti, I know that even the poorest among us is infinitely wealthier than the people who live there. Infinitely. We can... We complain about our houses, we complain about our jobs, we complain about this and that, and we try to keep up with the Joneses, and, and, we, and we're just not satisfied with what we have. And yet we are infinitely wealthier than those who live in most of the rest of the world, and I'll talk about that in just a little bit. 
This morning we continue our study in the book of James and we come to a passage where James has some very harsh words for the very wealthy among the churches of his days. And we're going to look at the warning that he gives them and why he warns them. And then we're going to find out how this passage translates to modern day America. We'll examine how this passage speaks to us as individuals, as a church, and as a nation. You know, when the rubber meets the road, I believe that James is calling us all to a better understanding of how we can honor God with our wealth. If you will turn in, into, uh, excuse me, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. We are in the last chapter of James. And uh, we got two more sermons after today, and then we're going to move into Christmas time. Yay! Speaking of too much money. Um, James chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one out of the pew in front of you. But I really want to encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. If you don't know where your Bible is, you need to find it. All right? And bring your Bible to church so you can get familiar with the Bible. Don't leave it at church. Remember to take it home and read it every day. And if you need to, blow the dust off of it. Bring your Bible to church. That'd be great. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now listen. You rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. God has blessed us so wonderfully and tremendously and amazingly. And the challenge that we have this morning is to, to learn how to honor God with what he has blessed us with. And that's what this passage is all about. In Luke chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In this passage that we just read, James is talking about those who were serving money rather than serving God. I don't believe that James was writing to rich Christians, but rather to the wealthy of his day who were taking advantage of the poor. The rich were given quite a bit of power in James's day, and they used that power to manipulate and oppress the poor people, including poor Christians. If you remember back several weeks ago, we talked about James chapter 2, and James admonished the Christians for playing favorites and giving seats of honor to the wealthy and rich among them. In this passage, James saves his condemnation for those rich oppressors, those who were oppressing the poor of their day. He takes the stature of an Old Testament prophet as he delivers a warning to those wealthy people. Listen to what Amos wrote in his uh, book in chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaks in the wall and you will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. It's a warning against those who oppress the rich who oppress the poor. James in verse 1 warns the rich that misery was coming upon them. He tells them to weep and to wail because of the misery that would come upon them. This is the kind of weeping and lamenting that is done when someone passes away, when someone dies. James is calling for an out loud crying kind of repentance from their sins. He says that their wealth has rotted or rusted and moths had eaten their clothes. Very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and 
and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. In James's day, clothes were an important sign of wealth. Huh. Sounds like today. But moss would eat clothing. And rust would eventually cover the coins of wealth, and thieves were always a potential threat. Their silver and gold would corrode and be tarnished, and it would be less valuable. They had placed all of their trust in their wealth, and their wealth would eventually let them down. If you look at verse 4, you see that James condemns them for not paying the laborers what they were worth. In those days, it was very common that you would pay those who worked in your fields, that you would pay the laborers on that day, at the end of the day, for their day's labor. And then you would take that, the money that you made that day, and then you would go and buy grain to make bread for the next day. That's, they lived, you know, you think about living paycheck to paycheck today, they lived day to day, paycheck to paycheck. That's the way it worked in those days. And so, uh, James criticizes them, he, 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 he is yelling and screaming at the oppressors of their day who would not pay their laborers for their day's wages. They would take advantage of them. They would do the work, but they weren't getting paid that day. James says that the cries of the workers had reached the ears of the Lord Almighty or the Lord of hosts. And when the cries of the children of Israel reached the ears of the Lord Almighty during their slavery in Egypt, God moved into action. James tells the rich oppressors of, of the day uh, that God was going to move against them. He condemns them for living lives of self-indulgence and superfluous luxury and warns them that they have fattened themselves up on the day when they would be slaughtered. He further accuses them of condemning and murdering innocent men that pose no threat to them. The wealthy of James's day were not using their God-given wealth to honor him. How true is that? And we wonder, are they doing it today? Are the wealthy of our day honoring God? You know, we have real difficulty realizing just how rich we are. We do. We we really complain about what we don't have. We complain about what we what we can we complain about what we do have that it's not good enough. And then we complain about what we don't have that we can't afford it. And then we just sit around and pout a lot because we're not as wealthy as we want to be. But you know what? Here, imagine this, okay? Imagine doing the following and you will see how daily life is for as many as a billion people in the world. Okay? Take out all the furniture in your home except for a table and a couple of chairs. And use a blanket and some pads for beds. Take away all of your clothing except your oldest dress or suit, shirt or blouse. Leave only one pair of shoes. <laughs> Sorry. One pair of shoes? I wouldn't know which ones to choose. I wear these quite often, but I really have a nice black pair that I like too. And then I got my gym shoes, then I got my casual shoes, then I got my boat shoes, then I got my, you know, my other casual shoes that I really don't wear very much, but I like them just in case. What would I do with just one pair of shoes? <sighs> Empty the pantry and the refrigerator except for a small black bag of flour, some sugar and salt, a few potatoes, some onions, and a dish of dried beans. Dismantle the bathroom. Shut off the running water. Remove all of the electrical wiring from your house. It's no fun, I know. Take away the house itself. Take away the house itself, move your family into a tool shed. Place your house, your tool shed, in a shanty town. Cancel all subscriptions to magazines, newspapers, and book clubs. You know, it's, and, and it's really not that much of a loss because you can't read anyway. Leave only one radio for the entire shanty town. No TVs, let alone high defs. Move the nearest hospital or clinic 10 miles away and put a midwife in charge instead of a doctor. Throw away your bank books, stock certificates, pension plans, and insurance policies. Leave the family a cash hoard of $10. 
Give the head of a family a few acres to cultivate on, which he can raise a few hundred dollars of cash crops a year, of which one-third will go to the landlord and one-tenth to the moneylenders. Lop off 25 years or more of your life expectancy. That's how over a billion people on this planet live every day. So how wealthy are we in America? I, I don't like talking about giving. I don't like talking about money. I don't like talking about wealth. You know, it's hard to hear. It, it's a hard lesson to, to learn to trust God in everything. It's a hard lesson to learn to give away 10% of what you make or more. It's a hard lesson to hear that, you know, we're living high on the hog rather than underneath it like so many around the world. I believe that this passage calls us to better examine ourselves, to not only see how wealthy we really are, but to realize just how necessary it is for us to honor God with our wealth. James condemns the rich of his day, not for being wealthy, but for not honoring God with their wealth. We need to learn to honor God as individuals with our wealth. And there are a couple of ways that we can do this. First, what are you doing to give to the kingdom? God set a standard of giving in the Old Testament of 10% of one's income. And you know what? He never rescinds that in the New Testament. He never says, oh, by the way, don't worry about that 10% stuff. You know, just give whatever you feel like. He never takes away the 10% from the Old Testament. He, what he does say is, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And you know, I've heard it said that, God loves a cheerful giver, but he'll also take money from a grump. But the first way we can honor God is to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. God dared, he dared, he said, Test me in this. He dared the Israelites in Malachi to give a full tithe of 10%. Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Test me in this. I dare you. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Now, I don't believe in a health and wealth gospel, that God's whole purpose is to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise, but I do believe that God will bless those who bless him by giving a 10% tithe. And if you, have want, if you, may, want, you may wonder, why, you know, why doesn't God bless me? Why hasn't God bless, blessed me abundantly? Take a look at your giving. What have you done with what God has given you? Do you hoard everything you can and give a few bucks to God? God expects us to return a relatively small portion, only 10%, back to his storehouse for the work of his kingdom. And don't, you know, you may say to yourself, well, I don't want to give 10%. I, I don't know what the church is going to do with that money. I don't, I don't like where they're going to spend it. I don't like what they're going to do with it. I don't know what they're going to do. And, and, and I, I don't trust the leadership, or I don't trust the ministers, or I don't trust the elders, or I don't trust the church, or I don't, I don't trust God to do with it what he says he's going to do with it. That's not, that's not our call. God says, give, we give. And then we trust him to, to use it for his kingdom. And that's the cool thing about giving. The wonderful thing about giving is that you can give to God and God will take your gift and multiply it and use it in amazing ways to transform people's lives, to change people's eternal destinations, that he will take that tithe that you give, that 10% that you give, and he will use it not only here in Griffith to see people come to church and, and learn about Jesus in a sermon like this, and we'll talk about Jesus in a minute, I promise. 
But they're going to come to church. They're going to learn about God. They're going to learn about Jesus. They're going to learn about how much God loves them and how Jesus died for them and how they can go to heaven if they will put their faith and trust in Christ. But not only that, but he uses it here in Griffith for a program like Kids for Christ, where kids from the community come for free every Thursday night and hear Bible stories about Jesus. He uses that money, that 10% that you give, and he takes it, and he gives it to, and he uses it for missionaries. Because we take the, the money that we bring in, we tithe that. We take 10% of what we bring in, and we send it to missionaries around the world. That tithe that you give, let's say you make $1,000 a week. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I wish. Let's say you make $1,000 a week, you take that, you take and you give $100 a week, and you take that 100 bucks and you give it to the church, and all of a sudden, little kids are hearing about Jesus, and uh, we keep the building nice and warm, a little too warm today, but you, the building's nice and warm in the wintertime when we come to church, it's nice and cool in the summertime when we come to church, and then God takes the rest of it, and he takes some of that and he takes $10 from that $100 that you give, and he sends it to a missionary across around the world. And that missionary tells people about Jesus. And there are people in the Philippines, and people in Africa, and people in China, and people in India, people in South America, who are hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are, their lives are being transformed, their eternal destination is being transformed. They are going to heaven because of that, that, that little gift that you gave here in Griffith, Indiana. God is partnering with you. He is working with you to change lives all around the world and we may not think about that we may not think about that we may think oh man if I give this hundred bucks this week things are going to be tight the price of gas is going up oh price of groceries is going up oh no well maybe I'll give 90 or maybe I'll give 80 or maybe I'll give 20 no God calls us to give 10 percent because when we do, he takes that money and he multiplies it and he transforms people's lives and eternal destinations all around the world. And that is the awesome thing about giving. We learn to trust God. We learn to trust him and, and, and to take him at his word and to believe his promises. We learn to trust him and he builds that faith in us and he changes lives. And that's awesome. We're going to see, we'll see, I believe when we get to heaven, we will see what God has done with the gifts that we've given. So are you giving a full tithe to the work of his kingdom, or are you hoarding wealth for yourself? God promises blessings for those who honor him and curses for those who do not. The second question we need to ask is, are we honoring God as a church with the wealth he has given us? It's a very important question because we want to honor God in everything that we do, especially in how we handle his money. Because you know what, folks? It's his money. It's not, it's not Sean's money. That offering you give, that's not Sean's money. That's not Bob Brooks' money. That's not George Bowman's money. That's not Mike Ryan's money. It's not Tony Martinez's money. That's not David Herbert's money. That's not your money. That's God's money. It's not the deacon's money, it's not the ministry's money, it's God's money. And we must be careful how we spend it and what we spend it on. And we also must not hoard it for a rainy day. If a rainy day comes along, God will provide an ark to save us. We must not hoard up the wealth that God has given us just so that we can have a large balance in a checking account. God gives us blessings and money to spend it towards the building up of his kingdom. And you know what, and I'm very proud to say our church leadership does a good job of this. When a need arises, 
when a need arises, our church leadership is quick to help out those in need. And I think our church leadership has a pretty good grasp on the importance of being good stewards with the money God has given us as a church family. They're not just spending the money on things to make us comfortable, but they are spending the money on things that will help us grow as a family of believers. The challenge is for us to keep on the right track of spending God's money to build up God's kingdom. To keep asking the question, are we honoring God with our wealth as a church? And the last question we need to ask, and this is a tough one, the last question we need to ask is, are we honoring God with our wealth as a nation? And you may be thinking, well, how does that affect me? We as Christians have a responsibility to stay on top of the news and the issues of our government. We need to get involved with the political process and make our voices heard when it comes to issues like funding for abortions, funding for homosexual groups, and funding for other issues that violate God's word. Speaking of issues that we need to make our voices heard on, there is a petition in the fellowship hall that I want you to consider signing. I'm not telling you you got to, but I want you to consider signing it. The Griffith Planning Commission is considering a change of use permit for Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is planning on, in the letter that they read, that said, we are going to move our facility from Gary to Griffith. All right, that's their plan. Planned Parenthood not only passes out free contraceptives, including birth control pills, to teenagers without their parents' permission or knowledge, but they also do abortion referrals. And the Maryville branch of Planned Parenthood does 35, on average, 35 abortions a week. That's here in northwest Indiana, less than 10 miles from here. They're doing 35 abortions a week, seven a day. And the, the Gary... Um, the Gary uh, Planned Parenthood refers people, they refer women to that abortion clinic. And they want to move to Griffith. They want to put uh, a facility up there where Subway and Aurelio's is at the corner of Ridge and Broad Street. And we've organized, the churches have been organizing petitions. St. Mary's Church has got 515 signatures. I'd say there are probably about 150, 160 of us here today. How many signatures can we get? There's a petition on the Welcome Center. If you're a resident of Griffith, or I'd say, you know what, you're a, you're a part of a church in Griffith. Put your name and address on that petition if you feel strongly about this like I do. If you feel passionately about this subject, please consider signing that petition. The petitions will be delivered this Wednesday to the Planning Commission. We need to let our leaders know that we believe that those things that do not honor God and with the wealth that he has given us as a nation... That, the, that that wealth should be used to honor him. And if we never make our voices heard, they will never respond. Politi politicians do respond to our voices. Are you willing to put your faith in action and challenge our leaders to use the wealth God has given us as a nation to honor him? Will you do that? Will you... It's important. It's so very important. John G. Wendell and his sisters were some of the most miserly people of all time. Although they had received a huge inheritance from their parents, they spent very little of it and did all they could to keep their wealth to themselves. John was able to influence five of his six sisters never to marry, and they lived in the same house in New York City for 50 years. When the last sister died in 1931, her estate was valued at more than $100 million. 1931, $100 million. Her only dress, her only dress was one that she had made herself and she had worn it for 25 years. The Wendells had such a compulsion to hold on to their possessions that they lived like paupers. What are you doing with your wealth? And believe me, we're all wealthy. Compared to those around the world, 
We are infinitely wealthy. Are you keeping it all for yourself? Or are you honoring God with your wealth? Are you honoring God with what he has given you? Are we as a church more concerned with the bottom line than we are with using the blessings God has given us to accomplish his will on earth? Are we saying your your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven with our wealth? Are we doing anything to help our nation be more responsible with the wealth God has given us? That is the challenge of James's words for us today. We need to learn to honor God with our wealth as individuals, as a church, and as a nation. In the parable of the talents, the Lord told those, Jesus told those who honored him with their talents that they had done well and that they, that they were faithful with a few things and he would entrust them with many things. If we are not faithful with the wealth we have now, how can we expect God to bless us with more? We must learn to be faithful, God-honoring givers as individuals, as a congregation, and as a nation. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, James has some challenging, tough words for us. And those words today are, are so hard to hear because, God, we, we don't understand all the time. We don't understand all the time just how wealthy we are. We don't understand how much you've blessed us. Instead, we complain. We have nothing to complain about for we are so blessed as a nation. Roofs over our heads, clothes on our backs, a warm building to worship and praise in. God, help us to understand how wealthy we truly are. And help us, God, to honor you with our wealth. I pray today for those who are having a tough time, for those who may be out of work, for those who are, 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 are stacked, who have bills that are stacking up. God, help us to trust you. Help us to know that you're in charge, to help us, help us to know that you're in control and that we can trust you, for you are good and you are faithful and your love endures forever. Help us to remember that, Father God. Help us to trust you in everything. Thank you for your gift of salvation that we can have by grace through faith in your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.